Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm so glad we're going to have this time together. I cannot wait to spend time with you today, and I hope your day's been going well so far. We've uh, gotten a little break from the summer warmth and heat. It's uh, a little bit on the rainy side today and a little bit cooler, and frankly, I'll take it. My lawn could use a little bit of moisture, and I think it's kind of nice just to not have to have my air conditioner on so high. Now that it's working, I went five days without it working, and I was... Not happy. <laughs> uh, you don't want to hear my problems, but it was not uh, comfortable in the old house when it's in the 90s. But got it fixed and things are going well. So I always feel blessed that I can actually go into a home that is cooled or warm. That you know, I never take for granted God's provisions in my life. If you ever take it for granted, you have to stop and rethink all the blessings that God has poured into your life because that's what he does, pours blessings And if you are at a disadvantage in life where you don't maybe have a place to live right now and you can still hear this radio program, we're praying for you. God's going to get you on a better path because he will bless you and keep you and not forsake you or give up on you. So just be encouraged. I'm always looking forward to Tuesdays because I get a chance to talk to Rob Bluey. He's the executive editor of The Daily Signal, and he's on my show to start things on Tuesday. And I can hardly wait. Rob is on the studio line. Welcome to the show, Rob. It's great to be back, Bill. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Now, as I was looking at Roger Stone's um, exoneration by President Trump, he was pardoned. And it sounds like he had a, a pretty serious conversion experience, not unlike Chuck Colson. Yeah, that's we have a story on The Daily Signal about this. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting uh, to read Cal Thomas's uh, take. Of course, Cal Thomas, somebody who who I've long admired, uh, one of the, the most widely syndicated columnists in our country. And uh, yes, um, you know, he, uh, Charles Colson, for those of listeners who may not remember him, uh, was known as Richard Nixon's hatchet man. Uh, he went to, to federal prison after pleading guilty to obstruction of justice uh, stemming from uh, the whole Watergate affair. And uh, and yes, uh, there are some uh, who, like Cal Thomas, who wonders if the experience that Roger Stone has gone through, uh, you know, might be an opportunity for, for him uh, to have a similar experience to, to Chuck Colson's, who after leaving prison uh, went on to uh, to do some really uh, life-changing work uh, for for a lot of people uh, with his prison fellowship ministry. So, yes, I, I anything's possible in this world that we live in, and we hope that people learn from from past mistakes and uh, and lead a better life in the future. Sometimes people are critical of prison conversions because they go, "Well, he, well, he's going to prison, that's so he found God." And I think to myself, you know, the the Department of Corrections is one of the greatest evangelistic tools out there because. You know, right. when you hear those doors close, I think you can hear God whispering, do I have your attention now? 
That's right. I mean, I think that uh, it, it, there is so much uh, that we should be devoting, uh, you know, in our lives to, to those who, who need that help. And, uh, and if, if they find themselves in the unfortunate position where they, they've committed a, a crime and they, they are in prison and they turn to God for answers and they, they, they look to Jesus and, uh, and, and the Bible for, for hope and inspiration, uh, then I think it's something that we should encourage. And for those who uh, work with, uh, with, with those individuals and, and pursue this as a ministry, um, certainly don't begrudge them. I think it's something that... Uh, in, in Chuck Colson's case, was his life's calling, and, and he devoted uh, much of his life to doing that. Um, so, so Bill, yes, uh, there will always be those who are skeptical, um, but at the same time, I think there's so many stories and examples that we can find uh, where people have uh, have, have left prison and, and led a, led a, a better life. And let's face it, as we talk, this president is somebody who's talked about uh, giving people a second chance and, uh, and and assigned legislation to do that, bipartisan legislation. I think it's one of the the things he's done uh, where he probably hasn't received as much credit and attention uh, for doing things like that uh, to help, uh, per- in particular, minority communities overcome some of the hurdles and obstacles that they face. So uh, let's uh, let's continue to keep a focus on it. I think any anywhere we can bring, uh, you know, the ministry of, of Jesus, uh, we, we should, and uh, that includes uh, uh, prisons as well. Amen uh, to that. It'll it'll hopefully lead to a better life. Amen to that, Rob. So Virginia Allen over at DailySignal.com wrote a really interesting piece on the petitioning politicians to uh, put an end to the toppling and defacing of, of the nation of the national monuments and statues all over the u.s that's right uh well this continues to be an issue that uh even though it doesn't seem like it's happening as much uh we still see our history and heritage coming under attack uh i do think that there may have been a turning point bill when when president trump decided on july 3rd and 4th uh to make this uh, really a signature of his uh of his administration, uh, coming out first with an executive order saying that we would crack down on those who who, who engage in this type of behavior, and then uh, defending uh, America. And I think we, the American people were looking for somebody to stand up, somebody in a position of authority uh, to, to send a strong message uh, to, to American citizens. And what better time to do that than on Independence Day? And, uh, and yes, there, there continue to be that, the criticisms of those individuals, but as, uh, as the Heritage Foundation's president, uh, Kay James, writes today in the Washington Times, uh, look, nobody's perfect, and nobody's saying that these individuals were perfect, but at the same time, they were noble leaders who strived to do the best thing for their country. And, uh, and even if they did make some mistakes in the past, uh, they really gave us an opportunity to, to have the country and the freedom that we enjoy today. And so to tear down and destroy uh, their statues and, mon- and monuments is really doing a disservice to the history that we ha- have come to um, know and appreciate as Americans. And so I hope we can learn from you know, those times in our history where, uh, where the, the men and women did not act uh, and uphold the, 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 um, uh, the principles that they believed in. Uh, but at the same time, Bill, uh, you know what? Th- there is there is a way to go about doing this, um, and I think that there's a democratic process that if somebody wants to remove a monument or memorial, and I can tell you an example uh, c- close to home in Alexandria, Virginia, there was uh, for a long time uh, on a, at a prominent intersection a statue of, of a Confederate soldier, 
And uh, they didn't tear it down or deface it or, or anything like that. They went through a democratic process in which the city council, uh, agree or disagree with this decision, uh, decided to return the monument to the daughters of the Confederacy, uh, which uh, now has possession of it. And it wasn't, you know, again, destroyed in the process. Quite a stark contrast to what happened about an hour up the road in Baltimore, Maryland, where they toppled a statue of Columbus and threw it into the harbor. Um, and so, uh, you know, just uh, unfortunate what we're seeing take place in some of these cities. And by the way, Bill, the refusal of these uh, local officials to do anything about it, which I think is just disgraceful. Mm-hmm. Rob, it's so hard to believe that Marxist ideology could be creeping back in, could be creeping into America. Uh, this uh, Jared Stepman wrote a great story on uh, on the fathers of communism and yes. some of the um, the. Uh, with the Black Lives Matter organizations, they're really self-described as as Marxists, aren't they? They Did are. That right? So uh, they do. Okay. Uh, they 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 make uh, no secret about that. Uh, there are there's there's videos and statements uh, of them embracing uh, the ideology of Karl Marx, and uh, and certainly uh, they they've made it clear that some of their goals and aims with the Black Lives Matter organization is to uh, impose some of those those very ideas on American society. Uh, the most dangerous and the one that's the most alarming to me is the destruction of the nuclear family, uh, a, a mother and a father and, and, and children. Uh, they want to destroy that and, and have uh, some sort of other structure in which, uh, in which our, our, our children would be raised by, by a village. And I'm not, I'm not opposed to villages at all. I, I, in fact, I grew up in a in a in a small village, and uh, and I I'm very grateful and appreciative for the support that others in that community showed us. But when it comes to teaching children right and wrong, when it comes to imposing life lessons, I really do think that it's a mother and father's responsibility to do that. And the fact that uh, Black Lives Matter wants to take that away uh, is, is is troubling. They want to do a lot of other things that uh, would borderline uh, socialist or Marxist beliefs. But what Jared is is pointing out is that Karl Marx had many ugly things to say about other races. Um, he, uh, he he was quite racist in his in his own statements. And as Jared said, uh, at a time when cancel culture seems to be raging, why is it suddenly okay for people to embrace the ideology of such a racist person uh, whose beliefs should be condemned and whose teachings went on to some of the greatest massacres in, in the history? Uh, of course, we saw this firsthand with what happened in places like the USSR, under the leadership of uh, of Lenin and Stalin, and in other places where, uh, where where those beliefs were embraced, so certainly not somebody to look up to. And I hope that children uh, are learning about this in school. I think they're probably not, which is why it's important for for programs like yours and the and, and news outlets like the Daily Signal to exist and hopefully make sure that people understand the true history of people like Karl Marx. Mm-hmm. You talk about cancel culture. And I I think if you do any amount of research, you're going to find something to cancel everybody on. Probably. And and Bill, uh, by the way, a couple of notable things in the news today when it comes to cancel culture. Uh, Bari Weiss, who was uh, an editor and writer for the New York Times, announced her resignation in quite a public way today from the New York Times, uh, citing cancel culture and the bullying that she received because of her her moderate or maybe a slightly conservative worldview. 
Um, whenever she wrote something, she said that she would be bullied by her own colleagues at the New York Times. This is the New York Times. Wow. You would think that this is a this is an organization where there would be enlightened individuals who uh, would be more open minded uh, to diverse points of view. But instead, uh, they chased her out, and she resigned instead. Uh, similarly, Andrew Sullivan. Uh, a longtime uh, writer in Washington uh, and New York, um, who, who's well known for his uh, first uh, more conservative, but in, in later years, liberal views, uh, decided that he would be resigning from New York Magazine. Uh, he didn't give a whole lot of details and said he'll be forthcoming in a column this Friday with some more information and, and his next steps. But I think that, uh, you know, on this day, on this Bastille Day, uh, when uh, when we, we saw what happened in, in France, we don't want uh, this to happen in in the United in modern day America, and it's it's quite sad uh, that there are so many in positions of power who are celebrating this this cancel culture. And I think that uh, as as so many people have pointed out, uh, might seem like it's distant and far removed from you today. But uh, you know there is um, there is a threat to all of us. Uh, if if one of our relatives, uh, one of us ourselves, says something, uh, we may find ourselves in the spotlight and under the Twitter mobs' mm-hmm. uh, attention. It's yeah. it's scary. Yeah, Rob, 87 years ago, the Washington Redskins started playing football. So the, the, the name is 87 years old. Is it time to change it? Yeah, well, you know, well, they are changing it. So. I know they are. They they have dropped it now. Uh, they they have retired the name, and it's uh, it's one of those things that is, is probably uh, like our, our presidential election. It's probably one of the most divisive issues in the country right. based on the public polling I've seen. So. Uh, you know, I am not, despite living in the Washington area, I'm not a, a Redskins fan. I, I, you know that I'm a Pittsburgh guy all the way are. and always <laughs> have been. So yeah. uh, the, the, it doesn't, you know, it, for me the, personally, uh, I'm not wedded to the Redskins name. Right. Um, I think that this is probably more of a business decision on the part of Daniel Snyder and the Redskins organization uh, because FedEx and, and some of the minority partners have expressed their uh, misgivings about it. I also think Daniel Snyder is a, a smart businessman, and he understands that if Nike and others aren't going to sell Redskins merchandise, then yeah. uh, you know he needs to probably move in a different direction. But uh, but I do think that you go down this uh, slippery slope, and uh, you know one day it's the Redskins, and the next day it's the Cleveland Indians, and the next day it's the Kansas City Chiefs, and. And, uh, you know, um, I don't think Pittsburgh has any offending team names, but maybe someday <laughs> they'll be coming for the Penguins and the Pirates and, and there'll be a reason for that as well. Yeah. So, but, uh, but yeah, no, I understand the complaints about the Redskins. I certainly do. Yeah. Uh, but I also, I also recognize that there are some Native Americans who, who see that as uh, in quite the opposite direction and, and, and support the Redskins for that. So yeah. it's a tough one. It certainly is. Let me take a little break. Uh, when we come back, I'll give you a little insight as to what I learned about the Vikings, maybe the Minnesota Vikings has to change their name too. Rob Louis, my guest, he's the executive editor of the Daily Signal. We'll be right back. Rob Louis is my guest, executive editor of the Daily Signal. We we're just talking about the name change for the Redskins, Rob, and I was thought, I wonder what the Vikings. I want to learn something about the Vikings. Maybe they're up to no good. It turns out the uh, Vikings were active in the slave trade. Many Vikings got rich off human trafficking. They would capture and enslave women and young men while pillaging Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, and Slavic settlements. There you go. Well, that's that's what I mean. Uh, certainly, pirates <laughs> don't necessarily <laughs> conjure up the right. you know the best image either. Uh, so I, I, I you know maybe we should just go without 
uh, without nicknames for or, or mascots for any of these teams. Exactly. Uh, because I'm sure that somebody could find uh, an issue uh, with, with, with them. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, in the, in the current environment that we find ourselves, uh, it, it, it poses uh, real questions, you know, for, for some of these, these team owners. And I, I will be interested uh, to see, you know, how exactly some of these other uh, sports franchises, uh, you know, ad- address these issues. Um, and, you know, I, I, I do think it's only a matter of time before, before the Cleveland Indians, um, you know, uh, make a decision on, on what they're going to do. And, um, and, and I've seen the Kansas city chiefs, uh, thrown in there as well. So sure. I, you know, the, the, the pressure from the, the Twitter mob and others is going to be unrelenting. Look at what happened just last week with the president of Goya foods, oh, I know. making a, a brief complimentary comment about our president, uh, who was, was, you know, he was at the white house, uh, for, uh, you know, uh, uh, an event on, on, uh, you know, the, the Hispanic, um, uh, leadership, and this is uh, the, the reaction was to, to boycott the company. I mean, <laughs> I'm glad that I'm glad that some people responded with what they called a boycott and went out and, and, and purchased a whole bunch of Goya food. But, uh, you know, it just goes to show that the the level of intolerance right now is just outrageous. And, and I see this mostly on the left. I mean, I don't think I, I, I don't you know, think conservatives are, are <laughs> saints when it comes to everything. But I mean, when it certainly comes to tolerance and, and, and different points of view, uh, conservatives tend to, to at least uh, give people, uh, you know, the, the time of day and the opportunity to share their thoughts. Uh, but the left just wants to shut them down. And, and it started on college campuses, and it's now expanded into social media and, and virtually all of our society. Mm-hmm. Rob, I know you're involved with the Coronavirus Commission. So coronaviruscommission.com is where you can learn more about that. Do you know why uh, the COVID caseload is uh, rising in California? Well, yes, there there's a variety of, of, of factors going into this. And, and thank you again for mentioning the, the commission. Um, we... Uh, we we continue to to be concerned about the rise in cases, not just in, in California, but are, across the country, particularly because the, it's already leading to, uh, you know, some some big decisions in terms of canceling school in Los Angeles and canceling in-person schooling in Los Angeles and San Diego. And I know parents are concerned. I saw a poll today, Bill, where, where over 70% of parents, uh, you know, have expressed uh, reservations about sending their kids back to school. And uh, and that uh, includes a majority of Republicans who who's, who seem to be more willing, um, you know, to return to, our, you know, our normal course of operations. So, um, but there are a number of factors. I mean, obviously, people being out and about in, 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 the, in the current situation, uh, warmer weather, you know, there people want to go to the beach, they want to do their summer activities. Not everybody is wearing a mask. I mean, there's a whole variety of reasons when you get into close contact with other individuals uh, that you find yourself in a position where um, you, you, you're more exposed to the virus. Um, at the same time, we haven't seen uh, the, the number of deaths increase. Uh, and the number of deaths really skyrocketed earlier this year because of some poor decision making uh, by governors like Andrew Cuomo, which uh, which you know didn't stop uh, uh, the the virus from entering nursing homes. And we know uh, that the nursing home population, which tends to be older and probably more susceptible to to COVID nineteen, um, you know suffered uh, a significant setback. 
um, including uh, including a great aunt of mine who who passed away, Bill. So I'm you know, sorry. I mean, our our family's uh, seen it firsthand. And uh, and we just have to be responsible, uh, Bill. You know, I, I I've talked to you in the past about um, my family in upstate New York, and uh, we we visited them over the weekend. We took a long weekend. Nice. It was my fir- first first trip to upstate New York nice. uh, since um, since December that since before the virus. Yeah, and my dad and I, uh, you know, both of us have been very careful. We we try not to go out and make trips. You know, just just the essentials. Uh, we. Uh, we we did our annual 15k race. There was no race this year, <laughs> mind you. They canceled the race. They canceled the Boilermaker. But um, you know, uh, but you know, we we did it together because we wanted to make sure that we we continued that family tradition. Uh, but we did so in what I hope was a safe and responsible way. And uh, and I know that New York has has told other, you know, not Virginia is fortunately not on the list, but has told residents of other states not to come <laughs> into the state. So I think that there's a number of actions you can take. Uh, Dr. Robert Redfield uh, uh, said, um, you know, that we could uh, all wear a mask and that would help, uh, you know, stem the, the growth of the virus. And I know that there are individuals for whatever reason, you know, personal protests that don't want to do it. Uh, you know, but I just ask people to continue to practice uh, you know, those, those healthy and safe, um, uh, things like washing your hands and make sure that you're, you know, make not, not doing anything to, to expose those who are most susceptible to the virus. Um, and because otherwise we're going to find ourselves in a situation where we're, we're going down the path of herd immunity. I think we might already be doing that bill mm-hmm. uh, inadvertently and, yeah. uh, and herd immunity of course, is when, uh, you know, a lot of people get exposed to the, to the virus, they get sick and then they get over it and hopefully have immunity. And while we don't know a whole lot about, uh, this virus, uh, it, it does seem that there is a certain level of immunity, uh, until we get a vaccine. Um, you know, that's, that's the direction that some people will, will have to go through. And a lot of people are going to get sick though, as a result of that. And, and, and some, uh, more so than others. Yeah. Rob, what do you know, or think about kind of the mass exodus of middle-class families out of New York city? I heard up to 500,000 have left. Well, and, and I think that there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, number one, I think people are frustrated by the leadership of Bill de Blasio and, and not only on COVID-19, but I think more broadly on, uh, on how he's running the city. Uh, the crime is up in New York. Uh, people don't feel safe. And when they don't feel safe, uh, they and their families, um, you know, are, are going to flee. Uh, this isn't the first time we've seen something like this happen in New York. I think what's so sad about it is New York had, I think, rightfully earned a reputation as being a safer city yeah, uh, it did. From, from where it used to be. But uh, but yes, when you continue to have these attacks on police and, and de Blasio is is front and center on this, um, you know, moving forward with his his defund the police initiative. Um, you know, I, I've seen that people are starting to, to use different words for it. I saw former President uh, Barack Obama using uh, reimagining the police, you know, but whatever you call it, I think it's uh, it, it's causing our police to 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 find themselves in a situation where they, um, you know, they're, they're questioning whether or not, you know, how, how they react. And I think in some cases, you know, maybe that'll lead to a better outcome. And and uh, but in other times that you, you hear these stories about people who are calling the police and no one's showing up and you just have to wonder if I found myself in that situation, you know, what would I need to do? Right. And, uh, and, and, you know, it's just, it's just troubling, Bill. Yeah. Headline in the Minneapolis paper uh, today was troubled, troubled South Minneapolis block calls police for help. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. That didn't seem to last long. Great irony there. Rob, thanks so so much. You're the greatest uh, 23 minutes in radio on Tuesday for me. Thanks, Bill. It's always good to be with you. Yep. So much. Thank you. 
Rob Lewis has been my guest, executive editor of The Daily Signal. After a short break, we're going to uh, have Jared Wilson join us. We'll be right back. so glad to be welcoming back Jared C. Wilson. He's an assistant professor of pastoral ministry at Spurgeon College, and he has uh, authored many books, Your Jesus is Too Safe, Gospel Wakefulness, The Imperfect Disciple. I could go on and on. He lives in Kansas City with his uh, wife, Becky, and his two beautiful daughters. But uh, today I'm going to talk about a book called The Gospel According to Satan. (laughs) Eight Lies About God That Sound like the truth. Great title, Jared, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Bill. Thanks for having me, brother. This is a a provocative title. I don't know if it's one your uh, publisher came up with or this was your idea, but I like it so far. Yeah, you know, it's actually one of the few um, original titles that, that stuck. Usually the publishers are wanting to change what you've, what you've used, but this is one of the rare times where they went with my working title. So I was, I was happy about that. I love that. So let's uh, jump into the book a little bit, because I know my listeners are real anxious to hear more. So let's talk about some of the lies, like lie number one, God just wants you to be happy. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think the the problem with the statement as it is, is the word just, <laughs> that God just wants you to be happy. Mm-hmm. I've heard some people say, you know, is God disinterested then in, in, in my happiness? And Certainly, um, you, you'd have to avoid large swaths of Scripture to think that God cares nothing about uh, your, you know, your happiness. But the idea that God only cares or just cares about your happiness um, is really um, at, at, at odds with um, so much of the other um, aspects of, of biblical testimony, where he, he's actually more concerned with our holiness, that we become more like his son which you know necessarily entails this side of of, of the Lord's return, um, suffering and and hardship, and in the midst of those things, it would be abnormal to be happy. You know, the normal human experience when things are painful is to, to is to be sad, and there's nothing wrong or sinful about that. The what I try to do in that chapter is 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 show how the Lord is not disinterested in our happiness, but He's more interested in our joy, that we would actually have a deeper-rooted um, joy in Him, regardless of what's happening in, you know, in our circumstances. When I think of a passage out of Acts chapter 5, it says, After calling the disciples in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. That's exactly right. You know, I think, you know, happiness is so often contingent on what is happening around us or to us. Um, and, and again, when when happy things happen, we should be happy. When sad things happen, uh, we can be sad. But the joy of the Lord is something that has a deeper root to it. It's, it's not about uh, purely emotion. It's about our affections and, you know, our internal disposition. Um, and, and our connection to God himself, who doesn't change and whose love is never revoked from us. So in, in that chapter, I'm really just trying to kind of, you know, come at the idea 
that all God cares about is, um, you know, that you get everything you want and, and the decisions you make are what, you know, ultimately please you. And what I'm trying to advocate for is, is people, you know, rejecting that kind of superficial emotionality and choosing that whatever the Lord chooses for, you know, for us uh, will not rob our joy because Christ really did come to make our joy complete. Uh, well said, Jared. I, um, I've been, my heart's been heavy the last uh, day or so when I heard that uh, Pastor Tim Keller has pancreatic cancer. Yeah, not awful. Yeah, it is terrible, and I, I didn't like hearing that. But there was a comment he made on his uh, Twitter feed, which I found uh, extremely powerful. And now I'm trying to find it, of course, and I can't find it quickly. But um, he made mention that one of the things that he would ask you to pray for would be for him to be uh, weaned away from the things of this world and to be um, uh, just more content in Jesus, which I thought was a powerful, powerful message. It it really is. You know, we're hoping that this, uh, he's been diagnosed with, with pancreatic cancer that, you know, is caught soon enough um, you know, he wasn't symptomatic and, and it was one of those incidental, um, mm-hmm. you know, catches, I guess yeah. they, you know, just, you know, discovered it through some other kind of routine procedure or some other reason he was in the doctor for the, the last saint that I had the privilege of burying in my last pastorate, um, died of pancreatic cancer. And her, her experience was like that. Um, she, you know, she, uh, in, in her last week's wanted me to read more and more from the scriptures, uh, from Ecclesiastes mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and revelation. And so much of it was her gaze was turning to the hope of heaven right. and, and the eternality of, um, you know, of, of being with the Lord, um, forever. And it's just, you know, it, it changes your perspective to, you know, to have a loved one, you know, go through something like that, that when you hear about, you know, someone else who, who you admire. And again, you know, I, I, I hope that, um, you know, he beats the odds here with the, um, with the Lord's help, but, um, you know, he's certainly one who has helped many of us turn our gaze to heaven. And, and so we'll certainly be praying for him. Mm-hmm. But there's something about what's in the heart's vault, that joy that can't be, um, disrupted, which is right. so powerful. So line number two, um, is a little bit like line number one that you, you only live once, uh, so live it up. <laughs> That's right. It is similar. Um, it's, it's kind of along the lines of those, you know, eat, drink and be merry kind of, um, you know, it's the new, the new variation of eat, drink and be merry. Uh, basically, you know, get as much pleasure as you can, um, you know, live the life exactly the way you want it, um, you know, to the limit now, uh, because this is it, this is all there is. And of course we, um, as believers in Christ, know that this is just a blip on the radar. I mean, you may live 120 years, but even that would be just a blip on the radar of eternity. And, um, you know, Jesus himself warned those who heard him to say, you know, don't just fear him who can take your body, uh, fear him who can destroy your body and your soul, meaning there are worse things than dying, um, which, you know, the implication of that is there's more that comes after death is not the end of the story. And so we ought to fear the second death more than we fear even the first death. None of us gets out of this life alive. 
Um, and yet those who are in Christ get to live forever, um, escaping that second death. And so in that chapter, what I'm really trying to do is, is help people understand that maximizing their, you know, fleshly pleasures and temporary happinesses um, now, as if this is all there is, are not making an investment in what really matters, which is the age to come. Mm-hmm. Well said. Uh, Jared, let me just back up to line number one again, because that one was God just wants you to be happy. And I also think that there's sometimes parents that come along, well-meaning, well-intentioned parents that say the same thing to their kids. I just want you to be happy. <laughs> right. Well, and I think sometimes that's a, just a poorly phrased um, you know, version of, uh, I want you to be safe. I want you to be healthy. I right. think any normal parent, you know, wants those things you know, for their children because they, because they love their children. So I understand the meaning behind that. Um, you know, and, and some of the phrases that I use, um, that I call lies here, um, it's really about sometimes what is intended with them or what the popular conception of them is. Um, Jared, let's, uh, move on. I, I, th- I find this next lie uh, you need to live your truth. So fascinating because I've never known anyone to really think for themselves. I've, I've always thought, <laughs> you know, because people say, well, I have to think for myself. And I always go, no, you align yourself with some thinking that already exists in the world, right? That's exactly right. I mean, yeah. And, you know, that phrase has, has become, you know, kind of part of the cultural lexicon, kind of through, you know, Oprah's influence mm-hmm. and some others. And, and, and you hear it a lot. And, um, you know, we've heard it a lot in the last couple of years, I think, as part of kind of the Me Too movement as well. And this is one of those um, where depending on the intention, right? So when someone has been a victim of abuse, for instance, and when they say, I need to tell my story or I need to tell my truth, uh, essentially what they're meaning is I, you know, I can't um, you know, hide this anymore. It's too hurtful. Um, I have to you know, walk in the light with this or bring this into the, into the open. Mm-hmm. And in, in those cases we say, um, yeah, you know, you, you know, we, we totally understand that, yeah. but there are others who use it as a way to kind of justify their own immorality or mm-hmm. their own bingo, um, you know, departure from yep. God's standard. And, yep. and that's the real problem with the phrase, because, you know, if you have a truth and I have a truth, what happens when those truths are at odds with each other? <laughs> it, it kind of, um, it, it, it betrays the idea that there's an objective truth or denies the idea that there's some objective external truth, the Lord's truth, God's truth, that actually we are beholden to. Um, I, I think one of the best biblical examples of this is the book of Judges, right? Where, mm-hmm. every, you know, every man did what was right in their own eyes. That's kind of the biblical version of, you know, everyone living their own truth. <laughs> and the result, of course, is lots of perversion, lots of bloodshed, a lot of injustice. That's what happens when you, quote unquote, live your own truth. Jared, I don't want to take you down a rabbit hole on this one, but when you talk about you need to live your truth, which is obviously a, one of Satan's lies, um, I uh, sometimes uh, think about the word conscience, which is con would be the Latin for with and science for facts. So it's with facts. So I always say, what are your facts? Because you'll operate out of your conscience and your conscience is what your facts are. And my facts are this. So if I'm true to my conscience and I'm, I'm, I'm living out my truth, uh, 
you got to start with what are your facts? What are the facts in your head? Yeah. If I, I say exactly if I say right. killing yeah. babies is wrong, uh, those that's my conscience. That's those are my facts. Right. Well, and I think the you know one of the major problems with it, as you just pointed out, is it, it's not really even based on facts. So often, when someone says, I, "I need to live my truth," what they're really saying is, "I need to live in in the way that I prefer, or <laughs> the way that." you know, that I personally, um, you know, feel pulled to or in accordance with my own appetites or my own attractions, which really isn't the same thing as as truth itself, uh, which is why they use that modifier. This is my truth, right? It may not be your truth, but this is my truth. And, you know, again, the problem arises when we have differing, you know, conceptions uh, of what is good for not just us, but for each other, for society. Um, you know, we can't live or we ought not to live as if there isn't an objective standard that tells us it's wrong to kill babies, for instance, or, you know, other things that, that the Lord declares that, um, when we go up against it, we do this sort of self-justification thing to say, well, this is my truth. I'm going to live my truth. Mm -hmm. In other words, I want to live by, by my particular sinful practices and and leave me alone. Yeah. I mean, it's idolatry. It's self-idolatry. Oh, totally. It is. totally. I, you know, I am the center of the universe. I define what is right and wrong. And, I, and, yeah. and, and I'm going to live according to my own, you know, dictates, um, you know, according to that. Yeah. Jared, this is an important book you've written. Jared C. Wilson is my guest. The book is called The Gospel According to Satan. Eight lies about God that sound like the truth. We're going to take a little break and we'll be right back with uh, more with Jared. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Jared C. Wilson as my guest. Jared's written many books, and the one we're chatting about today is his newest one out called The Gospel According to Satan, Eight Lies About God That Sound Like the Truth. Again, a very provocative title, which I find fascinating. Um, Another lie that comes up uh, often is that your feelings are reality. (laughs) Yeah, it, it sounds similar to the you need to live your truth claim, but in that chapter... I'm really trying to encourage those who may be given to depression or um, some kinds of deep discouragement, because what I have discovered is that the enemy loves to come alongside you when you are laid low in suffering or hardship, or just you're under some dark cloud that you can't seem to shake. And the enemy loves to say things like, um, this is happening because God doesn't love you or, or you don't belong to God. Um, or he, you know, the Lord is angry with you. God is angry with you about something. You're being punished for something. Or alternatively, um, you know, from my own experience, I know that um, the temptation sometimes is, is to think uh, that how it is right now is how it's always going to be. I, I will never be outside of this darkness. I'll never be outside of this difficult time. It's almost like the funhouse mirror of suffering. Um, where things become distorted, our, our vision becomes distorted. And so what I'm trying to do with that chapter is in, um, encourage those who, you know, may be going through some very difficult things to say, your feelings are important. Your feelings tell you something important. 
uh, but they're not the whole story and they don't tell you everything. And in fact, they don't um, always tell you the most important thing, which is that if you're a believer, your condemnation is taken away. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So whatever difficulty you're going through, um, it's it's not because God is angry with you. He has um, s- satisfied his wrath um, on the cross of Christ. Um, it's, if you're going through something difficult, it's not because he doesn't love you. Um, there may be some you know disciplinary uh, experience that you can undergo. You're becoming um, strengthened or you're being drawn you know closer to him. Uh, but then the other thing is just to say that, um, you know, as Paul does about suffering, that compared to the eternal weight of glory, which is the ultimate reality and, and, and true, th- whatever suffering we go through on this side, it, comparatively, is really what he calls a light momentary affliction. And so I'm trying to um, encourage those who are discouraged or maybe even given to um, despair in that chapter um, to help them see that, you know, your feelings are not, um, uh, you know, unimportant. Uh, you, you know, your feelings are not irrelevant, and yet your feelings are not the whole story. There is a reality that is deeper um, um, and, and more sustaining that can actually carry you through very difficult times. Now, Jared, that's a really important distinction you've made, so I appreciate you separating those two out. Yeah. Because um, there are so many people that their feelings are so intense and that they have then— determine that is their reality when it's in truth, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it's especially a temptation for those who struggle with depression, whether, you know, circumstantial or, or even clinical, um, because it does, it, 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 you know, it messes with your mind. It, it's a disordered kind of affections. And, you know, I know from experience as well that there are, you know, pits that you can be in that just feel so deep. You just think, I'll never be out of it. This is how it's always going to be. I'm always going to feel this way. And those who who follow that line of thinking just plunge further and further into despair. And and they forget that the you know the Lord's plans for us are are not despair. That you know the Lord's plans for us are not destruction. Um, and so we just have to combat you know how we interpret our feelings with the story of the gospel and and the message of of Christ. All right, Jared, the next uh, lie I'd like to talk about might involve you doing a little bit more explaining, um, because I think it was maybe Doc Brown from Back to the Future or any other motivational speaker that would come out and say, your life is what you make it. (laughs) And part of that that sounds like an okay idea, right? Yeah, well, it's it's really about uh, about sovereignty and about uh, about pride. Right. So, you know, certainly God has made us. um, We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, Every human being, um, whether they're a believer or not, has incredible potential because of the specialness of our creation. Fallen though we are, uh, we have, you know, incredible potential for uh, creating things and building things and sustaining things. And the danger that we see from Genesis chapter 3 onward is how so often we use those things to make monuments to ourselves. You know, the pursuit of, of building, you know, bigger, better, even creating a legacy, uh, accumulation, all of that in order to, you know, prop up ourselves or center on ourselves. 
all of that is really wasted time because it's essentially something that's going to rust and decay. So in that chapter, what I'm you know trying to kind of write against is the temptation to use the gifts and the ingenuity and intelligence that, that the Lord has given us by his common grace um, to use those in service to ourselves, that that's really actually a, a failure to use them wisely. Um, but also just to see that, um, you know, our, our lives are really what the Lord makes of them, that he is in control. Hebrews chapter one says that he is uh, upholding the universe by the word of his power. And so sometimes we can forget as we get stronger and more successful or more wealthy or whatever it is, we forget who's really on the throne. Yeah. And that's kind of what I'm um, coming at with that chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, this n- next uh, lie, which almost sounds like a cliche slash lie, and I, every time I hear this, I cringe a little bit, which is you need to let go and let God. And to me, the picture is always, I'll get off the field entirely, get on the sidelines. God will get on the field entirely, and he'll do all the work. Right. Well, you know, along with yeah, along with lie number eight, this may be one of the the most popular cliches uh, within the church. And, and I've heard it from, you know, so many well-meaning believers. And this is one of those, you know, as we talked about earlier, depending on the intention. So when somebody says you need to let go and let God, and what they mean is you need to have more faith in, in God, or you need to trust the Lord more, then it's, you know, pretty innocuous. Although I think phrases like you need to trust the Lord more are, are better <laughs> right? Um, and, and, and more biblical. Uh, but oftentimes the circumstances or the context, um, you know, that uh, kind of elicit this phrase or precipitate this phrase, um, I think make it more problematic. So when someone is really struggling, really, really struggling with the will of God or uh, just some kind of decision that they need to make, or they're or, or they're going through some kind of trial, they're suffering in some way, or they're in the midst of some kind of difficulty, and someone comes along and says, "You you you need to let go and let God." It's it's boarding it's borderline meaningless. It, it it doesn't it doesn't tell you what you need to do. How exactly do I let go? Right? How do I? Um, what is it that I let go of? Um, you know, just it's completely impractical and it, and it sounds super spiritual and it's it kind of has embedded in it in that circumstance, a kind of prosperity gospel, which is like the reason you're going through this difficulty is because you haven't let go yet. And if you let go, then you'll be delivered from this thing, which is, again, kind of a prosperity gospel way mm-hmm. of thinking. And the root the root of this phrase, let uh, let go and let God comes from. Um, a kind of higher life theology. Something I explore in that chapter is the historical roots of the kind of higher life spirituality that gave rise to this thinking. The other problem with it, of course, that that I also explore in the chapter is the idea of letting God (laughs) do anything. The idea that you and I, you know, let God do something kind of doesn't jibe with the idea that he is God and he doesn't need our permission to do anything He's not some impersonal force that is activated or released by us. Uh, he is a he is God. He is a personal God, um, and he does as the as the scriptures say. You know, he is in his heaven and, and he does as he pleases. So you and I don't let him do anything. Right. All right. We've just got a little bit of time left, uh, Jared. I'd love for you to talk a little bit of the autopsy of a lie. 
So the autopsy of a lie is sort of the conclusion to the book. I begin the book with a, a little introduction called the anatomy of a lie, where I, where I explore, you know, exactly what happened. The early pages of Genesis where the serpent comes to tempt Eve and by extension, Adam and where the fall comes from. And we see in the anatomy of a lie kind of three different ways that sin tempts us, uh, what's forbidden tempts us. And we see that in that fruit. Eve saw that it was uh, pleasing to the eyes, that it was a delight to look at. It promised to satisfy her. It looked like it was good for food. So it promised to fill her, to fulfill her. And um, um, and it promised to make her wise. Right. The serpent says you can be like God if you if you eat this thing. So it promises a kind of enlightenment. So it's beauty, fulfillment and enlightenment. Believe in a lie. We're essentially choosing one of those three things. It appeals to us in some way. It delights our eyes some way. It promises to give us beauty. It promises to give us some kind of fulfillment, satisfaction or it promises to enlighten us in some way. So when I come to the autopsy of a lie. What I'm doing is, is looking at the corollary, the redemptive corollary of what happened in the garden, which is basically Christ in the wilderness, and the devil comes to tempt him. And it's really the same threefold. There's a parallel there, right? The three kind of temptations turn the, the rocks into bread. Well, there's the, the promise of food. You can be satisfied if you, you know, if you go the wrong way here, you can finally have your belly full. He shows him all the dazzling cities of the world. So there's the delight to the eyes. There's the beauty that's there. He wants him to exploit his deity. Throw yourself off and the angels will catch you to exploit his deity in a way that w- was not prescribed by the will of the Father, that he was meant to go to the cross and mm. be resurrected and not to take that, quote unquote, easy way out. And at each point of those where where Adam fell, Christ does not. He He obeys the Lord. He withstands temptation. And that righteousness is credited to us. So that's what I say in the autopsy of a lie is basically how we understand how to get out of this death, which is only through the good news of the grace we have in Jesus Christ, his cross and resurrection. Mm. Jerry, you write well and you communicate well. That's a rare combo. <laughs> I appreciate that, Bill. Thank yeah, you, and Thank you for taking uh, the time today to do the show. I've uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Jared C. Wilson has been my guest, and his book is called The Gospel According to Satan, Eight Lies About God That Sound Like the Truth. Jared, have a great rest of the day. You too, brother. Thanks so much. You bet. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.